Hello and welcome to the Morrissey Exchange podcast. The information contained within this podcast has been provided as general advice only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances or objectives. You should consider if this advice is right for you and consult your financial advisor for further information. Hello and welcome to the 12th episode of the Morrissey Exchange. As per usual, I'm here with Alex Henderson to discuss the relevant issues around the world impacting our portfolios. Hello, Alex. Hello, Ben. Pleasure to be here today. So one of the things I wanted to run through this on this podcast was some of the more current things. And there's nothing really more interesting and current than the Suez Canal. So... Ignoring the vaccines and the state government idiocy and pointless tit-for-tat and posturing from pretty much all state leaders at the moment, the blockage of the Suez Canal has really taken everyone's interest. So I thought it'd be worthwhile just to run through a few points and therefore, you know, what comes out of it? How does it impact us? So firstly, a bit of history. It was built in 1869. It's the shortest link between the east and west. It divides a tiny little section between the greater regions of Africa and Asia, or specifically Egypt and and Israel at the top section. The Red Sea divides the two, being Egypt and Israel at the top, and and then Saudi Arabia at the bottom. But that's why it was built, because you've got the Red Sea pushing up between these two countries, and there's that section of land at the top, which they needed to bust through. So it accounts for around 90 ships per day, Uh, which is about 12% of world trade. I saw a report that says it actually is costing $400 million an hour in delayed goods, which I don't even know what that actually means. Wow. So the value of the cargo that passes through the canal every day is around $10 billion, uh, with $5.1 billion travelling west and $4.6 billion travelling east. So when you consider that sort of value going through i'm not sure what the charges are but you can bet that the owners who are the egyptian government through a particular body Mm. given the knowledge of the time and cost savings they would be charging plenty so after blocking the canal for almost a week that ever was it ever green or ever given i think it's called ever given but on the side of the ship it's ever green green. but uh i think no one will be wanting to be known as that anymore anyway no indeed Um, So it's blocked the canal for almost a week. It was freed on Monday. Um, The problem is that there is a massive backlog of ships and uh, and products. So there's going to be delays in deliveries for quite some time to come. There was also the concern that pirates were going to start to take advantage of the massive number of of ships just sitting out there. But I've sent 369 vessels waiting. 369. How big was the Ever Given? 400 metres. So it was bigger than, or it's bigger than the Empire State, and it's actually, so longer than the Empire State if you laid it down, and obviously it's also longer than the uh, Eiffel Tower, which was really interesting. One thing I saw that really tickled my fancy, um, there's over 20,000 containers that it can carry. Um, it only has only has 18,000 on it at the oh, moment. Yeah. Um, and its top speed is a, a cool 22.8 knots, which is uh, 42 kilometres an hour, which is pretty quick, given the size of it. I hate to think how fast they were going when they uh, put it into the side of the sewers, but uh, anyway. Try and stop that at try and stop 42 kilometres an hour. Mm. I suppose from our portfolios, the, 
The key issue probably would have been oil. You know, about 3 million barrels of oil per day passes through the Suez Canal. Uh, the blockage obviously pushed up the oil price a little. The oil price was bizarrely volatile last week anyway. There was a lot of talk about demand on, demand off, risk on, risk off. Then you have the Suez Canal issue, which is blocking the flow of oil via ships or seaborne um, oil through that area. So that obviously had a positive impact. But it doesn't look as though the oil price has slipped off in any way since the freeing of the Ever Given anyway. It's still holding up around that $65 mark. So mm. anyway, I thought it was an interesting thing to run through uh, with what was going on. It doesn't look to have had a dramatic impact on markets nor commodities. The the greatest impact was probably oil from what I've seen, and even that was that was quite minor. Yeah, it is interesting actually the the whole supply chain. We we've heard a lot about it over over COVID, about the supply chain and, and how that will be impacted. This is obviously going to impact a lot of those goods as well. I can't see it actually increasing prices anywhere to because it's not really the shock of that nature. Um, it's not like you can incentivise the producers to produce more of the goods by you know, hiking prices. It's, it's just one of those shocks. and Just a delay. It's just a delay, but it's, it's obviously going to have you know, further impact down the line um, for, for other goods and services. So um, could start to see it push through in inflation at some point. Someone needs to redo their parallel parking. <laughs> That's right. So the other thing was you, there were some other shocks that you wanted to touch on uh, yep. which have been bouncing around over the last week or so. Yeah, there have been, and, and I think that's an example of, um, of those shocks. But um, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, and I apologise, but there's Archigos. Um, it's a hedge fund over in the United States, and, and they're actually up 60-something percent this year. So in 70-odd days, they're up 60-something percent. They basically collapsed last week, so... What we saw was um, there were quite a lot of shock, sorry, a lot of sell downs and large lines of stocks being uh, shopped around by big, big brokerage companies like Credit Suisse and Numura um, over, overseas. And, and what it saw was companies like Viacom, uh, Tencent Music, Discovery, basically listed to or linked to technology companies and as well as media companies. And what happened was Viacom, for example, was trading at over $100 on Monday and it slipped back to $39. Slipped back is probably not the appropriate word. It crashed to $39. Bear in mind, though, it did start the year at 37 So, you know, if you're invested in there, you're still up. But it was a really large volume coming through and, and the source of these, um, these big sell-downs was confirmed over the last few days to be this hedge fund that collapsed and Look, what we saw was um, prime brokers were selling in huge volumes on Thursday and through the week, and it really relates back to um, back to derivatives, really, and, and leverage. So they were actually avoiding a 13F form that they needed to sign or, or declare. What's that? That's substantial shareholder. It's a substantial shareholder. So the way they got around, they had huge holdings in these companies, and the way they didn't disclose that they held them was to go through and have these um, what they call trade for value. These were total return swaps and they avoid having making the company declare that they've got a, a substantial holding in a particular company. And they're cheaper to fund than you know, your typical options or other derivative strategies. But when the music stops, it sure does stop quickly. And what happened was the prime brokers got hold of this stock and sold it down and 
whack. It really went flying. And, and the market didn't know until the weekend that this occurred. And, and what we'd seen was a huge company basically go bust and, and take the investors' funds with them. Do, do you know if this is a commonly used way of avoiding declaring substantial shareholding in companies? I don't know if it's too common, but I, you could see it sort of happening through that GameStop period as mm. well. Um, so I think it might be probably more common than I, than I realise and that the market realises as well. So it could be a way that these companies are avoiding the scrutiny, but when it blows up, it, it does blow up pretty quickly. Mm. It sort of reminded me of the time, that long-term capital management back in 1998, and they, they basically got not bailed out by the Fed over in, in the US, but they, um, they went through a similar problem where they, they had very big exposure in derivatives. And if the Fed let them collapse, what you'd see is that um, the, the rest of the, the financial markets would also collapse, so they had to bail them out. But um, you know, it wasn't so much a, a huge um, systemic risk, this one, in the last few days. It was more of a bit of a blip on the radar, but it's nonetheless interesting. And obviously- Some to watch, you know, yeah. particularly if there are other companies that hold similar positions with uh, similarly hidden holdings, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And look, the other side of the trade is obviously the dealers. Um, Numira and Credit Suisse have both reported large losses on the back of it. So you've got to look at their risk controls um, because obviously, or not obviously, but you do need to hedge out some of these risks. They didn't do that. Um, so I think questions we asked of them as well. It's a slippery slope, isn't it, in the, in the finance game? Yeah. The- Risk controls, when they just get that little bit loosened, they slip further and further, and then before you know it, there's a big problem out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. All right, moving on. One, one of the things that I've been talking about ad nauseum in the, um, in the weekly reports and in regular phone calls with clients is the value that's been cropping up in property trusts or, or REITs, real estate investment trusts, as they're otherwise known now. Why I've been doing it is... There still isn't, I mean, we've, we've enjoyed the run in the banks and we've enjoyed the improvement in value in a number of different areas since, uh, since March last year. But one of the areas that maintains good value at the moment is this property trust space. And the reason behind it, I think, is because we've got that real baby out with the bathwater type, type scenario. So when you look at some of these trusts that I've been talking about, first and foremost, Eleanor Retail Fund. It's a it's a small retail property trust. Eleanor Commercial Fund, Abacus, Centuria Office Fund, Centuria Industrial Fund, GDI. A lot of these trusts, in fact, all of those trusts are trading at a discount to their NTAs. That in itself isn't necessarily a buy signal for these trusts, and um, you've really got to go through the value of those particular assets. What are the cap rates that are being applied? on the properties, uh, what are the, the tenancies, who are the tenants, these sorts of issues not, need to be taken into account. But after going through that process, we, we sort of filtered down the value to a small number of trusts that do actually represent good value. Now, why do they represent this value? As I said, there's that baby out with the bathwater type scenario, but on top of that, there's a few other things in here. So one of the moving parts is the fact that longer dated interest rates are rising around the world, as we've discussed in the past. Now, all things being equal, other fixed income bearing investments, uh, as opposed to floating rate notes like hybrids, tend to fall in value to account for the rise in the bond yield. 
So this makes sense because the market accounts for the relative risk return for everything. Government bonds, low risk, low return. Corporate bonds, they've got a slightly higher risk, slightly higher return and so on. All the way up to equities. Now that all makes sense. But when you have quality trusts trading on yields of between 7 and 10%, the risk premium being applied for mine just seems too high. In other words, even if these assets are considered to be repriced. They're not going to reprice up to 12, 13, 14, 15% yields. They seem to be at that top level. So then you, you dig further in. Why are these particular stocks, as I was referring to earlier, why are these ones, why have they still underperformed when it looks as though that their yields are, are too high? And there are specific issues with these sectors. And obviously, one of the sectors, as I said, is office. Another of the sectors is retail. So you've got to go through why certain office trusts have been held down along with the others when they don't deserve to. So from the top, if you look at something like Eleanor Commercial Property Fund, um, they're sitting with about 87% of their tenants uh, either being government bodies, ASX listed or large multinational tenants. So you've got a real security of tenancies there. Then you can look at Centuria Office Fund, same situation, but they've got 80% of their rent that they're collecting is attributable to the same sort of thing, government or ASX listed or multi multinational tenants. So when you dig into these types of businesses, you look at the tenants, you look at the cap rates, and it doesn't look as though there's going to be a major drop-off in the rent at any time going forward because of the diversity and the strength of their actual tenants. You can say the same thing for some, something like Eleanor Retail Fund. Um, Eleanor Retail Fund has got 77% of their tenants as largely non-discretionary tenants like you know Aldi's and Woolworths and Coles and that sort of thing. Yeah, ben, um, one thing I do see actually is the uh, whale, term whale, weighted average lease expiry. One that did catch my eye, sorry to interrupt you there, but Centuria Office Fund, they, they actually had a, a, well, they've got a tenant, Foxtel, who... They left one of their buildings and they had to pay out the rest of their lease. So if you look at that, they're going to get, as long as they can lease that office exposure or office again, they'll get double rent for the next few years. Sorry about that. I'll... No, it's a, it's a valid point. I mean, again, it's, it's one of these trusts that have been sold down. Yep. It's trading at a discount to its asset backing. And most of these asset backing discounts are running at about 10 to 20%. GDI is the same. ERF the same, COF, Abacus is another one. Abacus does have um, office property, but 50% of their tenancies uh, and the property value is actually in uh, Storage King, the storage unit facility business. So when you, when you take all of this into account, the low level of gearing, quality tenants, trading at a discount to NTA, good yields, these trusts will perform well and not dissimilar to listed investment companies where you can make a, a decent trade and a decent living by buying listed investment companies whilst they're trading at a discount to their NTA, which is generally listed shares, and then sell them when they're trading at a premium. You can do the same thing if you analyse the properties within these property trusts pretty well as well. And on the way through, pick up some excellent yields and some pretty reliable yields on the way through. The other one, that oh, well, there's two I, I didn't mention. One was Century Industrial. Centuria Industrial, uh, which is obviously industrial property, they didn't have the same discount to assets uh, applied to their share price, but they actually just increased the value of their assets. Now, 
because Centuria Industrial, uh, they're involved in warehouses, distribution centres, that sort of thing. They were in no way affected by the COVID lockdown. In fact, they saw trade go through the roof. And as a result, they've actually been spending money and buying more distribution centres uh, to take advantage of the opportunity that, that was at, at hand. But still, uh, there was a period there where they were trading at a slight discount to their NTA, which at the time was 299 It's since pushed up to 332 and they're trading about 328 So they've done particularly well. But the, the other one which is particularly interesting for mine is the Dalrymple Bay infrastructure business, which is DBI. Uh, it's the Dalrymple Bay Coal Terminal or uh, Terminal. Um, it's the world's largest export metallurgical coal facility and it handles something like about 85 million tonnes or can handle 85 million tonnes per annum. Now, they own the terminal. They have other operators operating within the terminal and I'll emphasise it's metallurgical coal, not, uh, not thermal coal. Yet their trade, they were listed at about 2.30 not long ago. They're trading at about 2.10 at the moment and trading on a 9% quarterly distribution. It's extraordinary that these types, are they quarterly or half yearly? I think they're quarterly, but they won't pay until June. So the first one, you you won't see that till June. But it's extraordinary that something with such reliable tenancies, uh, such as Darwinpool Bay or these other property trusts, can be trading at such steep discounts. So don't be surprised to find that I'll be continuing to talk about these property trusts and um, and things like the Dalrymple Bay Coal Terminal for some time to come, simply because there's good value there. Um, moving on, the other thing that I wanted to touch on is, of course, JobKeeper is now gone as per Sunday. So much of the talk about the $90 billion JobKeeper program, particularly in, I suppose, the, um, the, the TV news will be that uh, many, many businesses will fail once JobKeeper rolls off. The peak requirement for JobKeeper was about 3.6 million people. It's currently running, according to some news articles, it's running at about 1.1 million people. That's what the ABC indicated. Treasury believes it's around 900,000, which I think is probably a closer number, given they'd have access to the correct information. But one of the points is that Treasury believes there's going to be about 150,000 workers who will move to being unemployed. So 150,000 people. However, the latest release of ABS data shows that there's a job vacancy at the moment of 250,000 people. The labour market is ripping. So yes, there's going to be differences in skills. Obviously, there's going to be uh, geographical issues. There's going to be all sorts of uh, considerations that need to be taken into account. But that fear, that cliff that we had that we were going to fall off because JobKeeper was ending does not look to exist. There does seem to be a cushioning for those people who are going to be out of work. There is a lot of job vacancies out there. I mean, obviously, things like the city-based restaurants, cafes, pharmacies, anything to do with the city centres where there are uh, there is a lack of activity. And just to cross back, the office properties that we were talking about earlier Almost all of their properties are on the fringe of cities or in regional areas or in Western Australia where there is still strong net absorption or strong demand. Where there is the weakness is the city centres and you can see that in the the areas where there's expected to be continued unemployment and I can tell you working in the city at the moment it it is pretty quiet. But unemployment, I mean unemployment would slip back from 
We got to about seven and a half, seven point six percent. Currently running at about five point eight percent, which is not dissimilar to where it was in twenty seventeen. Um, it was on a steady decline from about 2015 onwards until 2020, when, of course, it spiked and it's since slipped back down again. But, um, yeah, just interesting to see what does happen with JobKeeper rolling off and and um, whether there's going to be anything significant coming from an investment perspective, uh, whether it's going to impact us at all. Look, and, um, back overseas, look, I've been having a look at the US market and it just continues to soldier on. Um, the Dow is currently at all-time highs, 135% above the high set just before the GFC in 2007. Uh, same with the tech-heavy NASDAQ. It's up 187% above the high they made in 2000 um, before the, the whole tech bubble burst. So, And most staggeringly, uh, 387% above the 2007 peak. And we're stuck at 6,800 points over here on the on the XJO, the, the ASX uh, 200. And we're barely a few points above a previous high set in late 2007. So you can see that we've hardly moved at all. And even in the last few months, I look at our market, you know, we've, we've been reopening. We've got good COVID numbers. We've got the vaccine coming. We're up 2% since uh, the end of November. And you look at the Dow Jones, that's up 11%. And the Nasdaq is is up only only seven percent. So it's it's really the tale of, of t- well, the two speed economies and and the two different markets. And yeah, how how are you seeing that play out in in our market then? What what annoys me about Australia for for some reason there's been no support for growth, no 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 support for entrepreneurial spirit, and you can tell that by the the makeup of our major stocks, you know, for the last 10, 20, 30 years. Certainly there's been a change since, you know, 40 years ago, but it's only subtle stuff. Still major miners, still yep. still the big banks, still supermarkets, those sorts of things. It, it never changed. Whereas in the States, there was just such a pursuit of growth that they were prepared to fund and support the development of these, these technology plays. And you can see the benefits that they've had as investors by the way that their their markets have performed i mean when you look at our top five stocks it counts for 28 percent of the whole market five stocks 28 percent of the market commonwealth bank bhp csl westpac national bank it's the same it's the same it's been for 5 10 20 years mm. then you go to the top 10 the next ones are anz fortescue west farmers macquarie woolies that accounts for 42 percent of the market it's no wonder we haven't shown any growth because we're stuck with the same stuff that hasn't really shown significant growth. The banks were overpriced leading into COVID. Yep. Then they got cheap. Now they're getting up to more realistic values now. So where to from here? I mean, there's there's only two new entrants into the top 20 that are worth really looking at. One of them's Zero, uh, which is the cloud-based accounting platform, which is a wonderful business. The other one which I'm highly critical of, and it's going to have a great future, but it's just overvalued, is, of course, Afterpay. Mm. But it's a real problem that we've got here in the Australian stock market, and it certainly does justify us using things like the US Future Leaders, um, Alliance Bernstein, where there's um, some really good exposure to some of the better quality um, businesses overseas, where they are experiencing um, significant growth. Well, thank you to all for listening. If you have any queries about this discussion or require any other information, please either call us on 9268 110, shoot us an email or jump onto our website at 
www.morrisseygroup.net.au. Have a great day. The Morrissey Group is a corporate authorised representative of Shore and Partners Limited, ABN 24003-221583. Our financial services guide is viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au. Any content within this podcast is subject to the terms and conditions of Shore and Partners Limited's disclaimer, as viewable at www.shoreandpartners.com.au forward slash disclaimer.